Hey, this is Brent Jensen. Welcome to the 100th episode of the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast. This week, we are going to celebrate that milestone with a look back at some of the highlights of the show since it began on May 1st, 2017. I went back into the vaults and I put together a retrospective that draws on so many great moments of the show. I've been fortunate to have some absolutely amazing guests hear incredible stories and tremendous insights, have a lot of laughs, some tears, took in so many great musical performances and uh, engaged in some truly unforgettable conversation. I wasn't able to reference all 99 episodes, of course, but I have gathered a lot of great moments that really define the ethos of what the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast has come to be. A place to talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And uh, I thought about trying to categorize the clips because some of them are funny, some of them are poignant, some of them are factual, but I feel like it's just best just to roll them one after the other with maybe a little bit of a preface or an intro for each to set the tone. So one thing before we start, I have a lot of people to thank for their assistance uh, over the years with this show, but two individuals really deserve special acknowledgement for their efforts. My good pal Kent Bailey is one of those people for everything that he's done to get me started down this path before the show even began. And uh, my homegirl from Virginia, Joe Watson, for working with me through the pilot phase of the show. You know, for trivia buffs, it's a little known fact that the first recorded episode of No Sleep Till Sudbury was not actually episode two. The first recorded episode was, in fact, episode 14, originally recorded as a pilot just to test the equipment, and it wasn't ever intended to be released as an actual episode. So thanks to Joe, and thanks to Kent, and thanks to every one of you, of course, out there for your loyalty over the years. I couldn't have done it without you. And so without any further ado, a look back at the history of the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast. I hope you enjoy it, folks. All right, we're going to kick it off with a clip from episode 81 and my buddy Stephen Stanley and a promise that I made to him that I may end up regretting. Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And friend of the show and leader of the Stephen Stanley band, Mr. Stephen Stanley, is here. Hi, Brent. Hi, how are you? I'm back for my third time. (laughs) You are. Third time's a charm, hopefully. Five times you get a jacket. <laughs> okay, let's book a couple more. I need a jacket. <laughs> I noticed that. It's getting cold outside. <laughs> I, thought you were, I thought you were commenting on my jacket. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I'll get you a new jacket. <laughs> I, want the, I want the No Sleep Till Sudbury jacket. All right, sure. well, I'm going to do that. We have guests who are coming up to, to five. You're one of them. So. I just made a promise, so I guess you got to get to now the I, now, I'm, now. now I'm bound. I have to do it. <laughs> All right, so... Um, You've not had a drink since August, Mr. Stanley. We need <laughs> oh, to we're going to talk about that. Okay. So I'm like, I'm, I'm partially scared and partially uh, enthralled that tonight may be the first time that you have a beer since August. When we finish this podcast, it's just there's something again about this place that's just so relaxing. But right. But I think it'll be a, it'll be a game time decision though. I, it, I, all, I, I want to be very clear. If you do not want to, oh, and I don't feel I don't feel that you would try to uh, peer no. pressure me into drinking at all. So never. Um, but I mean, it needs a little bit of context because I, it wasn't anything but just uh, trying to, you know, just just give myself a bit of a change of paradigm and not drink for a bit, which is I think it's good to sort of change things up once in a while. Absolutely. But when we toured in uh, the summer mm-hmm. and 
started in Germany and then went to the UK and then uh, a bunch of dates in Ireland. Um, it was a real good drinking time, and yeah. touring can be a real good drinking time. And uh, case in point, the festival we played in, in Germany... And the reason I'm telling the story is because I think a lot of the music we're going to talk about tonight is really framed by that tour and things that I, you know, bands that I hadn't heard of that I discovered along the way on that on that trip, and then some sort of touch points of, from other bands that I've known for a long time, and, and you'll know as well. I was actually going to segue into that. I'm oh, trying. I'm sorry, I'm stealing, <laughs> I'm taking over the show. <laughs> How about this? I'll ask the questions, you give the answer. <laughs> okay. Stanley did end up having a drink that night, by the way. Next clip is from episode 54, and it's Ron Tight. He did a fantastic job, covered all the bases. Fantastic guest. Well, I also felt pressure because because you're a music guy, and yeah. I'm not like I'm. I love music, but I'm not. A, I'm not a quote unquote music guy, you know. No. And and I thought, oh, gee, am I gonna have to come up with some obscure, cool <laughs> track that? Oh, you don't know that B side from Bowie and seven, you know, like. Um, but I, so I just went in a completely different direction. Like, no, these mean something to me for weird reasons, and uh, let's explore that. Perfect. That's yeah. perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Okay, so your first one here is country music legend George Jones, and the song is "Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes." Yeah, this, uh, this, the emotional response from this one is is tears. Weirdly, um, you know, for for those that don't know the song, you know, he really the the notion is he he talks about all the country legends who have passed away mm -hmm. and and this great history of country music from the Grand Old Opry and it kind of coming out of, uh, you know, the, the breakdown of country versus Western and bluegrass and all that stuff. Yep. And when the music really matured and then it, it created these stars mm -hmm. like George Jones and like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and, and Elvis Presley to, to a little bit. And and um, why it, it's really significant um, is because my um, my mom was not a music person, but she was hardcore country western music. Okay. And so growing up, the sounds in my home were those sounds. It was Folsom Prison Blues. Yes. It, you know, and 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 it was Oki from Muskogee, yep. and it was Willie Nelson, and it was, it was George Jones and Tammy Wynette, and just hardcore old school country. Yeah. And I grew up hating it. Me too. You know, because it wasn't cool. It's not cool, like the weird outfits they would wear, and and um, it was also very depressing. I found it's very as depressing, a kid, right? And when I tell you this part, it gets even more depressing. Okay. Because um, my mom passed away in two thousand one, and when we were looking at like what's we should play music at her funeral, like there, you know, there's always like the one track, and we're like, well, I don't know, like what would you play? And we we stumbled on this song, and it was just like, who's going to fill their shoes? And tying back to who's going to fill her shoes? Perfect. And and then after that, I because of the song, I began to really, I think, understand that I actually did like like I love Johnny Cash. Yeah, so do I. You know, and yeah, and 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 there's some Willie Nelson where I love it, and 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 even there's I I think I found the beauty of George Jones, and I may not love it. Yeah, but I, there's something really compelling, like nobody hit it out of the park in that genre, like George Jones, and that should be celebrated. Oh, he had one of the greatest voices in country uh -huh. music for sure. But I think that you know, as a kid, and you and I are relatively the same age. I think yeah. we're in the same age. Um, I'm 32. Is that what you are? I'm, no. I'm 29. Actually. Okay, good. Yeah. So we're about the same. <laughs> 
Um, when you're a kid, you have no appreciation for that music because there's no bombast to it. Right. There's, no, there's no, you know, sensation to it yeah. really. It's just very kind of depressing and, and, and almost monotone, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, but as you get older and you appreciate the, the, the breadth of it, yeah. you know, like Johnny Cash is fantastic. I, I love Johnny Cash. Yeah. And even, you know, George Jones and, and Loretta Lynn, like you appreciate the, the, the kind of depth of it. Yeah. As as you, you know, become more wise when you turn 29 and 32. Yep. Right? Yeah, I mean I mean just like, you know, people love the every man growing up in Jersey Springsteen kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I mean that was to the south of the US. Like that was. It was Springsteen of of Tennessee that I mean George Jones had a rough life. Yeah. yeah I mean this guy was a massive alcoholic. Yes. Um it's a weird story. My so my dad, who we weren't that close with, and and uh, you know you know who kind of flew the coop really early, was a musician in his day. Okay, and um, and I I see a lot of my dad from what I know of him in in Johnny Cash. You mm. know that he he kind of looked like a Johnny Cash. Yeah, he had that kind of rough exterior, but Johnny Cash. Yeah. Um, and um, I remember I'm telling a story on going to see Johnny Cash live, and somehow my dad got them backstage oh and johnny cash was too drunk to perform really that he could not go on stage wow and they just made the crowd wait when was this do you remember it it would have been late 60s i would imagine or maybe (laughs) mid 60s in montreal okay he could not go on that's how hammered he was you know in the music that you and i probably would appreciate it's not that but it's someone doing blow or yeah you know but it's, so it's all the same stuff the same torture and journey and everything yeah. but yeah. it's just the tennessee journey and you know i don't know i i didn't live that journey but i i certainly appreciate it yeah well that's a great point it's all the same right he was a kind of a tennessee whiskey drinking guy yep. but then you know in the 60s came jim morrison yeah. who would pass out on stage yeah Aerosmith, same thing. The eighties, like cocaine, all of it, right? So it's that that same kind of ethos is there. Yeah. So yeah. It also, you know, a lot of people aspire to be those people and it's like you I think you just want the end result. You don't want the journey because the journey's pretty ugly. It is. I think a lot of people see it as almost the there's romantic affectation involved. Yeah. Right? The tragic artist you know but you know you got to be really careful how far you kind of delve into that romanticism otherwise you're not going to make it out yeah yeah i saw i mean my background's in comedy and i i would see that occasionally in comedy where there's like the people who were maybe brilliant comedians but their life was just a shit show and and it's like "Mm, i don't want that yeah you know that's a that's a very scary notion, you know, the the idea that comedians are actually, you know, very depressed people and that's almost like they're kind of it's almost like an alias, yep. right? So, it's almost like a shield for 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 them. Yeah, there's great insight in anger, yeah. right? Like when you think of great bits in comedy and great passages or licks in music, mm-hmm that it's at the catalyst for it is typically anger, right? It's like, what's the deal with the thing? <laughs> well, the reason you say, what's the deal is because you're, you're frustrated with it. Exactly. Right? Like, why are they doing that? That's Seinfeld's career, basically. It's, yeah. it's frustration. Yeah. yeah. And and some people, it takes over and they become an angry comic and now they're just ranting on stage. Mm-hmm. It's being able to turn that anger and that frustration into something poetic yes. and interesting and funny. 
Yeah. And, in, and in music is being able to take the anger and frustration and, and sell it. Yes. So what's what's really interesting is, so we name our son Maxwell, yeah. and the first song that comes to my head is Maxwell Bang, Silver Hammer. Maxwell Silver Hammer, of course, right? yeah. And I just and I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm not a big Beatles guy, but I, you know, I know I kind of start seeing it, and I'm in the room after he's born, and I and I Google the lyrics to the song. Oh, it's yeah, it's scary. It's about murder. That's right. It's about somebody who's on trial for killing somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Boom, boom, Maxwell Silver Hammer goes down upon her head. Boom, boom, Maxwell Silver Hammer makes sure that she is That's dead. Right. And But it's got the trombones and the band. And it's, I boom, know. Boom. It's just, I still sing it to him now. He, only, he, won't, he, won't, he won't know the lyrics for a while. He won't know what they mean. It's such a playful song. And I, I just don't want to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and... Where, where is the where is the point where you stop singing that song to him? <laughs> like that is trial. <laughs> Here's a clip from episode sixty two with my pal T, Tara Sloan. So George Michael and father figure. Yes. Well, so that song was from uh, I think everybody knows it was a number one single and it was from George Michael's first solo album that was so, a crazy run Faith. i remember he had how many hit singles from that record i don't know 80 million yeah. five probably I four think was, well, i think there was like six or seven maybe for me when that came out um i was in grade nine okay uh, so i guess it's 1987 and that song in particular it's all wrapped up in uh having my first serious boyfriend okay you know i haven't really dissected the lyrics enough to think maybe is that kind of creepy that that's the song that reminds me of him because um, there was no father figure he was in grade nine also um, but there's such a potency and an emotion to that to the father figure certainly and so yeah for me it's just it's one of those evocative pieces of music it just brings up this time in my life where I was experiencing love and emotion and heartbreak and yep. you know so forever it will be yeah. My grade nine love song. Episode 86, Alan Cross returns to the show and shares a very interesting fact about Pearl Jam's Alive. Okay, your last tune, my friend, Pearl Jam and Alive. I, this is one of my favorite songs ever, I think. I go through Pearl Jam phases every once in a while where I realize what a good band they were, mm-hmm. especially that first album. Now, when that record first came out, nobody knew what to do with it because it was, you know, in in contrast with the Pixies and Nirvana and some of the other stuff that was coming out in 1990 and 91, Chili Peppers, Ministry, Rage Against the Machine. Well, that was a little bit later. But uh, what do we do with Pearl Jam? Because the original thinking was, and this this also befell Alice in Chains, was these guys are just a mainstream rock band. Yeah. We don't. We we're an alternative station. We are. We're alternative fans. We don't play this crap. But that changed obviously over the next couple of years. And Pearl Jam became one of the leaders of the grunge movement. They yeah. are basically one of the holy trinity, along with Nirvana and Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. And the production on that rec- on 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 Alive is absolutely astounding. I was invited to. Panasonic headquarters Mm -hmm. where I got to hear a high resolution version of Alive through an $80,000 sound system. Wow. 
And even though I'd heard the song a thousand times, two, five thousand times, yeah. I was able to hear things in the mix that I'd never heard before. I mean, there's there's all kinds of acoustic guitar all over the song. Really? Yeah, but it's buried in the mix. And you really have to listen for it on a high-resolution recording before it comes through. Wow. So um, I often use it. I, I ended up buying uh, a very expensive stereo for my studio downstairs just so I could listen to songs like this yeah. in high-resolution audio. Yeah. And uh, I often, when I bring people down to listen to it, I often put on a live and say, okay, I'm going to turn this up, and I want you to listen for all the things that are unfamiliar. Wow. Chances are you've never heard them because you've never heard them on a stereo like this. But trust me when I tell you that you will never hear the song the same way again. Episode 51, Rob Proust does an all-Canadian playlist. Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that... What does it do, Rob? Makes your skin vibrate. Yes, it does. Good vibrations. <laughs> Making his triumphant return to the show, former Spoons and Honeymoon Suite keyboardist Rob Proust. Rob, welcome back, my friend. How are you? Happy New Year. So glad to be back. Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it, man. We've been talking about it for ages. Like, I mean, since since even before we did the first one, I think you were like, you know, you could always do another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, you so. and I could do like 20 more for sure. <laughs> we could write a book. We, could, <laughs> we actually could, couldn't we? Well, you could. <laughs> okay, so you have got a great theme for us today. I really like this. So being the, the wonderful Canuck patriot that you are, Rob, you've got five songs that were primarily hits in Canada and nowhere else. Now, that's with the exception of one song, and that one song you and I talked about, and it's, it's, a, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, song, it's a song that I've always despised. Uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like I kind of I hissed when I saw it on your list. But, you know, that, that's, the, that's the beauty behind uh, democracy is that it allows for individuality. And, and, of course, you know, definitely. And, I, and I, I feel the same way. Like, I know that there's, there's something for everybody and you, it is democratic, but at the same time, you don't have to like what everybody likes. And I, I guess maybe when we think of, like when I think of songs from like early on in my life, I think how I learned to love so many different types of music. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really care. Like I, there were very few songs that I was like, oh my God, I have to turn the radio off right now. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I sort of learned to like such a broad range of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we got to narrow our, our, our tastes as we got older. And, as, you know, as you get to, like, hit fast forward or make your own playlists or whatever. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you don't like that song. <laughs> Going all the way back to episode six and Robin Washington being a smartass as usual. Now, I'm going to give you credit for something right off the bat. Okay. okay. So the very first conversation that we had after we met, yeah. you uh, asked me, uh, this is after we talked about the fact that you know we were kind of attuned musically, mm-hmm. and you asked me what I thought was a great question. I actually stole it and awesome. I and I use it on the show. Okay. So the question was, what artist should you love mm-hmm. but don't? Right. Yes. I think it's a fantastic question. Thank you. I, I actually stole it from someone else, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'll act like it was mine. Good for you. Yes. Good for you. <laughs> so, what is your artist? So my artist um, is Led Zeppelin. Oh. And it's it's really, I mean, I know that when I say that out loud, 
it makes people upset. But it has nothing to do with Led Zeppelin and their influence or anything like that. And everything to do with the fact that my brother used to listen to music at all hours of the night and just so loud throughout the house. And I would literally wake up every morning to the sound of his voice. Just like... Robert Led, Plant. Yeah, Robert Plant, like his his voice just like... Nah, 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 like screaming <laughs> into my ear. And so every time I hear him on the radio or anything, I just cringe. Right. And so everyone who just goes on and talks about how much they love him. I just can't do it. Like, I respect them. And, you know, Rush is another group. I, mm. I know you either love Rush or you hate Rush, and that's usually what happens. Not many women are Rush fans. It's Jetty Lee's voice. I just can't <laughs> do it. Again, I respect him, but I've just never been... Yeah, I get that. What was yours? Prince, right? Prince. That's just a shame. But, you know, I and I was talking about uh, Prince to somebody else in another episode. I, I, I respect Prince. But I kind of see Prince as more of a rock guitarist, you know, and, and other people, unfortunately, bill him as an 80s pop star. Right. 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 Because he's just got such a huge mm-hmm. uh, arsenal, right? He's right. a talented guy. And for a lot of people, guitar was only a little bit. But that was the thing that I kind of really tuned into right. for Prince. So if you heard When Doves Cry right now on the radio as you're driving, do you change the channel? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and know that I will respect you less if the answer is not the right one. Which song has the really great guitar solo at the end of it? Purple Rain? Uh, the fact y- that you don't yes. know that even hurts my heart a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. What to... You just finished telling right. me that you, you love Lucas with the lid off. I but love But you Lucas. don't know Purple Rain, which is... I You know what? If I, I, I do. I, I mean, I know everyone Purple loves Rain. Lucas with the lid off. Yeah. But... Yes, so Purple Rain does have the, the long guitar. Song. Okay, so I love that. I would not change that song. I might change When Doves Cry. I might change Little Red Corvette. Are you dead inside, or is it just there's something that happened to you <laughs> in a prior life or something that just... I don't get it. <laughs> like, how do you not feel things with Little Red Corvette? I don't get it's it. It's not a great song. It's not a great song? It's really not. I don't think. Confused as to what I do right now is if, like, do I leave or do we just continue talking about this? I get it. Okay. We can, we can stop the interview right now. <laughs> I think this is, we're done. We're done. Okay. Episode 28, Phil Collin from Def Leppard, talking about his favorite band. I was pretty surprised. Uh, your next tune, Phil, is by The Police, and it's Walking on the Moon. Right, The Police um, are my favorite all-time band. That's that's the, the Really? Thing. And, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I, I think I think Sting um, was and and sometimes is my favourite songwriter. I, I think he uh, he can you know walk the line of, of actually great songwriting and uh, and pop silliness. I mean, he can yeah. really do the extreme. He actually can go. He can get a little um, you know blasé and he can do anything he wants like, from a songwriting point of view. Sorry, it's funny you say that, Phil, because I've always said that the Sting's true talent was being able to, you know, write lyrics where he rhymed things like Forenza and Influenza, you know? And right. <laughs> Absolutely. He, he could do whatever he wants. He could be silly, you know, uh, da, 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 one yeah. minute. And then, you know, uh, yeah, Every Breath You Take is is one of the classic songs of all time. Yeah. And, uh, uh, walk, walking on the Moon, though, would actually done something to me as well. It just... It, Again, it, it, it was a goosebump thing, you know. As much as I, I, I would go, I wish I'd wrote every breath you take. It's, it's walking on the moon that that sends shivers down my spine. And I think it was the, the sound of the, um, the again the band and, and everything, you know, just so haunting. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just the, the the vibe of the whole thing, and uh, you know the space and the, the Andy Summers, everything about it. You know that they, they were a true hybrid. You know they took you know the, the reggae thing and, and the rock thing, and and it came out you know in in the punk era. Uh, yeah. So it, it just had a bit more venom in it as well. It had a lot more fire than than guys who normally. These guys were like jazz guys. You know they all played you know in jazz bands before, but there was a, a an absolute fire. Yeah. in the plane like you know Stuart Copeland one of my favorite drummers of oh, all time yeah. when you put those three in together it, it just done magical things and whenever I hear the the, the band you know I, that's again goosebump time I know I keep saying that but it's uh the, the police do that every every time I hear them play you know I, I got to see them when they reformed and yeah I, again I thought it was magical it's my favorite band and so you know I would say that but uh, I, I do think Sting's uh the most uh, amazing songwriter and you know you can you can do a, write a classic uh or or, or you know you can and be a, make make a silly pop song or, oh, yeah. or both you know so it's yeah, yeah he's, he's not afraid to laugh at himself i, I like that on, right. on his um I, I can't remember the name of the song but on his later solo stuff you know he towards the it was the outro of the song and he said every every breath you take every cake you bake every egg you break you know and he was kind of like you know, making fun of uh, of uh, every breath you take and, and stuff like that. Like he's just he, he's, you know, that's his thing, right? Absolutely. I, I, there's in like stories. Like there's a song on one of his solo albums. I, is it "Hung My Head"? I think it's almost like a country song. But yeah. It's, it's more than that. It, in, instead of just doing, you know, I hate the way where country has gone now. It's it's kind of taken the the, the great elements out of country and western, which was like a story, a real heartfelt, you know, warm story, and it's got really commercial and icky and mm-hmm. I, I think with this song hung my head you know it's this story about you know this father and son or going riding out on their on their horses and, and it's it you pay attention to it because it's such supreme songwriting and yeah. and i just listening to the lyrics and i think that someone can make you sing along and on another song they can actually make you focus on the lyrics that's that's a that's a true test of a great songwriter so you know, I can't say enough about Sting as a songwriter. I think he's, he's, he doesn't get enough credit for that. Yeah. You know, I think another thing he doesn't get enough credit for, Phil, is his bass playing. He is a Absolutely. fantastic. You know, if you listen, you listen to, you know, any one of those police songs, you really listen to the isolated bass line. It's fantastic. It really is. And I think, what uh, again, what, what it, it's got such a uh, confidence and prominence and, you know, there's a there's a real power to it. You know, it's like it's really hardcore. It's very punk rock. Yeah. I don't mean that in a. Just I'm talking about the approach of it. It's like it's very unapologetic, and it's mm-hmm. and it's very. You hear him whenever. Yeah, I mean, I, I love his bass playing. It's great. Yeah, and the fact that he can sing that stuff while he's playing is is kind of. You know, it's Getty Lee territory. Exactly, yeah. exactly, right? So the bass lines are intricate yeah. on their own, and then at the same time, he's actually singing, so... Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, so impressive. Three masterclass musicians, for sure, in The Police. Definitely, Great band. Definitely. Episode 59, Autographs, Steve Lynch, talking about how they got their snare drum sound. Yeah, and you know what we did with the snare... The reason why that snare sounds like that yeah. is we actually went into the studio. Um, with, we went into the back of the studio, and there was these stacks of uh, 
of cement bags and uh, we fired like a 308 into it and we fired like a 20 gauge shotgun and everything and then we we took all all of those yeah and then we put them together with the sound of kenny's snare yeah and then a couple of other snares combined and it just made it sound huge huge so when you hear that bat especially on the breakdown of the song yeah then we really turned it up in there it's mainly gunshots that's a great little yeah when you you think back and you listen next time you hear it then you'll go that's gunshots there Episode 35, Charles Leach talking about the history of music. Fascinating stuff. Once upon a time, um, the world was ruled by the church. Mm-hmm. And you really couldn't do anything if the church didn't agree. And they had incredible power because even politicians and government were worried for their souls. And so they deferred to religious figures. And at the time, this is around the 1600s, there was this thing called the Council of Trent. Mm-hmm. And the Council of Trent was a whole bunch of church bigwigs, and they got together and discussed what was the problem with religion and what threats were coming up and big SWOT analysis, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the story goes that, that at one point there was a great concern expressed at the current trend in music in the church, which at that time was polyphonic. So generally four voices, soprano, mm-hmm. alto, tenor, and bass. And there was concern that the musicality of masses and anthems was actually getting in the way of the lyrics, Hmm. which essentially was the scripture. And as far as the Council of Trent was concerned, the whole reason that music existed was to communicate the scripture. The whole idea was the lyrical content of the music. And if the music was getting in the way of communicating the scripture, that means it was essentially unreligious. And that's a problem. So the, the story goes that there was a conversation at the Council of Trent about banning polyphonic music because it was getting in the way of, of spreading the word of God. And so a composer who was very prolific at the time, whose name was Palestrina, basically said, well, you tell you what, I actually can prove to you that this is not a problem, um, and give me a couple of months, I'm going to give you some music that will demonstrate, in fact, how this is all going to work out for everybody. And so they gave him the opportunity he went away and composed this thing called the Missa Papa Marcelli, okay. which is named after Pope Marcellus, who actually only was a pope for about five weeks, apparently. So um, kind of a, a weird title. But nonetheless, performed it for the cardinals of the Council of Trent. And this was music that was polyphonic, multiple lines, not just soprano, alto, tenor, bass, but in some cases split soprano and split um, alto lines, so a lot going on. Mm-hmm. But the scripture, the music was so carefully... Um, calibrated with the lyrical content that even though it was musically beautiful and very polyphonic, there was no question about what was being sung. You could hear the words, you could hear the scripture, it was very clear where you were in the Mass, and everybody was terribly impressed. And the story goes that the Cardinal at the time, a guy called uh, Cardinal Carlo Bomero, apparently then gave his blessing, said, you know what, I'm wrong, you're right, that's amazing, it's terrific, I know exactly where I am in the Mass, and you have our blessing, you can keep going. And from that point on, the whole tradition of polyphony was was intact for all of rock music to later enjoy. <laughs> and if they had banned polyphony at that time, you know, the, the question is whether, in fact, any kind of polyphonic music would have ever been developed. It's possible that it never would have happened or it would have taken a very different run because all modern music that's polyphonic takes its genealogy, genealogy from that from that one instance. So that's kind of the first part where polyphony starts. Fascinating. The goosebumps, though, is more the second part. So if we move kind of forward in history a little bit, the second um, piece of music that I, I gave you was actually the prelude and the Liebestad to Tristan in Isolde, which is a 
Philosopher written by Richard Wagner. And in particular, there's a, a, a bit in there called the Tristan Chord, which is also really important and influential in the history of music um, and the idea of goosebumps. Uh, and the Tristan Chord was fascinating. Do you know that piece of music at all, Brent? Do you into Wagner at all? No, I don't. Yeah, so Wagner is an acquired taste for many. Mm -hmm. uh, Wagner came along at a really interesting time in musical history because everybody who composed up to him um, composed a lot of tonal music. Okay. So tonal music is Palestrina and Beethoven and Mozart, all of those classical guys, they all composed in a tonal manner. Mm -hmm. And tonal means that whatever key you start the music in is the key you finish the music uh. in. And it's very, it's very rare not to be very clear what key you're in throughout the whole piece of music. Right. So most Mozart stuff, right, is in a key and it's in G sharp or it's in B flat or whatever whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And he might vary from that on a note or two, but will resolve it very quickly just so that you're back in that key and it always ends in the same key, very tonal. Okay. And that was musical tradition up until Wagner. And Wagner started to mess around with that. So Wagner got kind of bored with tonal music and he started to experiment with atonal music. Okay. And the Tristan chord was this landmark, very inflammatory piece of music where right in the very first like three notes of the opera, mm -hmm. he ends on this really weird combination of notes which actually doesn't resolve and actually doesn't make sense and doesn't hew to the key that the first three notes of the opera in. It's atonal. Interesting. And, it's and everybody kind of flipped out when this happened. Everyone was like, what is that all about? Like, mm -hmm. how is that possible? It's called the Tristan Chord, very famous. Okay. And in part, its fame has to do with the fact that Tristan and Isolde is a four and a half hour long opera. And Wagner doesn't actually resolve that chord until the very end of the opera in the Liebestod. And the Liebestod, which translates as love death, is the point where Isolde rejoins Tristan by dying and therefore is able to be with him in death. Okay. So that idea of joining with somebody finally in death, like the ultimate perfection of love through death, is Liebestod. And at that moment, when Isolde dies, that's musically when it resolves. Which means that for four hours and 25 minutes, mm. you're sitting there in the audience in a state of musical tension. Wow. And you're, you're kind of uncomfortable because it's not resolving and you don't really know where it's going and it's excruciatingly tense for four hours and 27 minutes and then it resolves and when it resolves, all of a sudden the whole thing makes sense and of course everybody's in tears. That's crazy goosebumps right there. Wow. Crazy goosebumps. That and is fascinating. You know music, as soon as you hear the, the, the Tristan chord as it kind of slides around, mm -hmm. that alone gives you goosebumps because you know that he's making some point about how frustrated human beings are in life with bigger issues like like love and passion and desire. It's all about how we we live these lives of unfulfilled passion and un, unfulfilled desire. We never really get exactly what we want or everything what we want or who we want. And the opera is about the belief that the only time you're ever going to achieve really true satisfaction in life ever is through death. Here's a clip from episode 70 and my pal Rick Emmett telling me a story about the bizarre pair of pants that he used to wear before Triumph. Okay, should we get to your... Oh, Rick, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. Okay. A pair of black pants with a glove sewn into them. So uh, let me just frame this for the listeners. So so I was I was 
uh, with Blair Packham yesterday, and he said, if you're going to be at Rick's house, you're talking to Rick during the show, you need to ask him about the black pants and the gloves sewn into them. And I said, I kind of, I kind of was like, what? And he said, no, no, no. He'll explain it all to you. Okay. <laughs> so uh, first rock band that I ever played in that became, you know, sort of relatively successful Oh, was it called Justin Page? And Justin was a kind of a bar singer guy that had got a record deal with Capitol and had become, been sort of built into a kind of a a glam rock character. Okay. So he had his hair dyed one color in the front and another color in the back, and he would go everywhere with two Afghan dogs, and he had like the, a big c- kind of cop handlebar mustache kind of thing. On stage, he would wear a chastity belt with garters and, and, and big black boots above his me but fishnet stockings and chains around his neck and there were two girl singers in the band uh and they both had chastity belts and they were gay they were from the lesbian community and the guy that wrote all the music for it was joey miller and joey was a guy from the gay toronto community so all the songs were like rough trade this and ky cutie and like they were all sexual referency kinds of things Mm -hmm. so when i auditioned for the band it was sort of understood that I would wear makeup and and I would have to have a costume. Okay. And I went, yeah, you know, I'm I'm cool with that. And in a way, that whole thing of, you know, you've got to realize it was the David Bowie, Alice Cooper, yeah. Lou Reed, you know, kind of time. T-Rex. Yeah. So there there was that. And, and um, Master John, you know, boots with the, you know, <laughs> giant, yeah. So um, uh, my, uh, <laughs> my aunt... And my mom helped me sew that's a costume. Okay. It was a black satin vet, little vest okay. with a pair of black satin pants. Okay. And I had uh, Davy Crockett. Oh, no, sorry. I had two outfits, the okay. black satin ones. I, so I had a woman's white dinner glove. Okay. So it, and it was, you know, the, the, like the, the long ones that came all the way up your arm. Yep. And it, it, it was wire stuffed with foam so that it was like, a, a, and it would come through my crotch and be holding my package. The white glove would be like, on, and I had a white strap with a black outfit. So this white hand was like, everybody went, what the hell? So, and I had black eye makeup like Alice Cooper and black lipstick and running down my face. And, okay. Yeah. And so that was me playing. And I was really big into Richie Blackmore at the time. So it was like my white strap with my. Yeah, yeah, and the, so that was the, the it was the black pants. The other outfit was like a girl's black gym leotard. Do you remember those? Yeah, like yeah, when yeah. they had the girls were doing aerobics or whatever it was they were doing in like their gym classes. Those black, longer sleeves, stretch kind of a thing. And then I had black pantyhose, and okay. I had Davy Crockett boots with that one. <laughs> so Davy Crockett brown fringe boots with black pantyhose with a black thing with the white glove on them. Oh, the white glove on that one as well. Oh, yeah. Well, there's two gloves, so I had two outfits. So you could have left hand, right hand. Yeah. Perfect. And I could change at the intermission. This is a great clip. This is from episode 73, Ron McLean's second appearance on the show, talking about how he gets choked up listening to Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty and why. Okay, next is uh, Jerry Rafferty in Baker Street. I love this tune, too. Yeah, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, your your book, uh, All My Favorite People Are Broken. Uh, I have a fair number of people that are broken that I adore. You're going to hear two in a row, I think, here. Yeah. Jerry Rafferty is, uh, you know, he died, I don't know at what, what age, I think uh, 62, but, you know, he, he, he fell victim to alcohol addiction and... Uh, 
Such a great, I mean, the song itself speaks for itself. The harmonies, the melody, uh, it's, you know, I love, for me uh, as a broadcaster, that line of, you know, you used to say that it was so easy. You used to think that it was so easy, but you're trying. You're trying now. Yeah. Another year and then you'd be happy. Another year, one more year and you'd be happy. But you're crying. You're crying now. Um, God, I love the, I love the sax. I love the oh, yeah. lyrics. I love everything about the album. Even Steeler's Wheel, you know, he, everything he ever did was uh, beyond belief. Uh, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're a star. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry for me, uh, because he was a broken human being, uh, when he sings right down the line, you know, knowing it was another time he'd fallen off the wagon and he disappointed his loved one and he he's scrambling through song to... Uh, to write thank yous and to write apologies and just revealing so much of his heart. And he had, you know, some bitterness in him. Funny, you and I were talking before the show about Paul McCartney, and uh, I think he thought the Beatles were overrated. I don't think he... He was a very exacting, very demanding musician, Jerry. He didn't appear in America. He wouldn't take the bait and take money and play in the United States. Really? Oh, God. I didn't know that. He He was an introvert. Uh, I think, you know, partly because he was a functional alcoholic, uh, yeah. you know, he just couldn't do the tour. Um, I shouldn't say that without knowing it fully, but uh, I do know that he he had that darkness, right? He had mm-hmm. a little bit of blackness in his, uh, in his cynicism. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, as I keep coming back to Heraclitus, is the one, the uh, great philosopher who said, we are not this or that, we are both. Uh, and he was, uh, he was able to muster these most beautiful songs I could go on and on about all of them but baker street i always when i'm driving brent and baker street comes on and it yeah. finishes and i know he died tragically i always pet the dashboard stupid thing but i pet the dashboard <laughs> really? yeah and i say you did a good job jerry you did a good job that's great even now i get emotional thinking about it yeah i love that episode 96 and andrea ramelo talking about how they just don't write them like they used to anymore I love this song because there's this, is this a PG-13 show? You can swear. Well, I was just going to say there's this ballsiness to it that's like, and that's not a very bad word, but there's this ballsiness to it. It's like this man who's, you know, probably more likely than not done his woman wrong, Mm -hmm. but he's just has this confidence and just like asking her to come back with this swing and this soul in it. It's totally. just like, of course, like who wouldn't come back to that? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, I love, I love his approach. You know, the, the simple format of, of that, that sort of blues soul song. It's yeah. always been in my heart. I mean, that's why, you know, uh, Janice does that. Nina Simone does that. All the, all, the great soul singers, the people who wear their heart in their music. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that, you know, Sure, intelligent musicians that, you know, fantastic. Kudos to them. And I appreciate what they're doing from a cerebral level. For me as a listener and a lover of music, if I can't feel your soul or hear your soul in your piece of music, then I'm not, I just, I'm not drawn to it. It doesn't invite me particularly in. Totally agree. And he just is, he's all soul, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just got that swing Mm -hmm. too that you just, you don't hear that anymore. No. And also just, I mean, I came from the world of dance, so I grew up with a lot of like 50s and 60s music and, mm-hmm. uh, and Motown and all that. that. I mean, yeah, this is, this is, this is part of that. So yeah, I love, I, I wish we could go back, you know, and live it all over again sometimes. Yeah. I honestly do. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, nostalgia is a, a very powerful concept, 
But I often think like I was an 80s kid and I, I don't know if I appreciated the music that much when I was kind of inside those movements. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I would love to go back to the 70s. Oh, yeah. Because that was a time when music was just organic and pure and real mm -hmm. and, you know, communal, right? Everybody kind of came to it. Well, there's, it's not cultural anymore. Like before, it was rebellious. You know, people used to sneak into like jazz clubs and, and you know, dance inappropriately and <laughs> smoke jazz cigarettes and do their thing. And like people would, would come together yes. with music. Yeah. Now it, it just feels like everyone just does their own thing with music. We're we're, yeah, we're segregated. Yeah. We're separated because of technology. And I mean, can we really go back? Probably not because. <laughs> Unless everything explodes and we we start anew, but but it's nice to it's nice to revisit and remember where where we came from. Yes, as yeah. as musicians and where it all started. Episode sixty six, Terry Motionberg talking about how art imitates life and life imitates art. How his life resembled a Springsteen song one summer. Uh, well, I, I I left home for Bruce Springsteen. Oh. I ran away from home. Tell me about okay this. for Bruce Springsteen. Okay, like literally, this, this my my about. first girlfriend, uh, my high school sweetheart, uh, was from Jersey. No and, way! And I have a thing uh, for Jersey girls. Okay. And <laughs> They've got such you? a great spirit, right? Were you in Toronto? I was in Toronto. She, her family, uh, was from Toronto. Her father uh, was a a president of a, a massive corporation. Okay. And they traveled a bit. Uh, they spent some time in Lausanne, okay. Switzerland, going to school and while well, her father was there working. But for several years, she was here. And uh, her hometown is, 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 is Jersey. And uh, for whatever reasons, uh, our families didn't want this to happen. Okay. She decided at one point, after being together for three years with me, yep. that she was going to F it and go back to Bergen County College. And, um, and how old were you at this time? I was about 18, 17 or 18. Okay. There were no such thing as cell phones. There wasn't a thing called the interweb. Yeah. And I would literally grab a, a pocket full of coins and, and go, to the cell, go to the, uh, the, the payphone <laughs> and we would cry for an hour into the payphone until the money ran out. Wow. When she moved down there. That sounds like a Springsteen right. song in itself, doesn't so, it? So, um, so I decided that I was going to grab my guitar, yeah, f it also, yeah, and go with her, yeah. So um, I did. My parents thought I was going for like a couple of days, okay, with another friend who you know ran cover for me, yeah. And I went down to uh, her garden apartment in the middle of Bergen County, yeah, and uh, I had every intention of staying there. She was, uh, I mean, she, she, we're still very much in touch. Oh, good. She literally called me last week. Oh. I swear to God. Really? And said, Mosh, I went to see Bruce on Broadway. Wow. Right? Brings a tear to my eye. That's awesome. That's yeah. a fantastic story. Yeah. So what happened? So you were there for what sounds like a pretty decent period. And then did you come back to Toronto? Lasted a couple of weeks. Oh, oh, it was only a couple of weeks. Only a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I, I got up. Uh, I hope she never hears this. But what happened was, I woke up one morning, mm -hmm. and we had had a long night of, of fun. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of partying that summer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I looked around, cigarette butts in the ashtray beside the bed. Yeah, you know, 
vodka bottle over on the coffee table. Yeah. I was in the middle of nowhere. Okay. In the middle of the armpit of Jersey. Yeah. You know, four towns down four different streets at, a, at an intersection. And I thought to myself, where am I? Yeah. What am I doing? I got to go home. Yeah. I got to go home. And I got up and I went home. Wow. Just like that. And that was it. Episode 32, John French from Twisted Sister returns to the show and talks a little bit about the Beatles. Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And making his triumphant return to the show is Mr. J.J. French from Twisted Sister. Welcome back, my man. What's up? Oh, man, I'm reading your book. Awesome. And I'm loving it for many, many reasons, not the least of which was I drove that Trans-Canada Highway, uh, both with Twisted Sister doing a, a tour in 85, in which we actually drove from from uh, Halifax to um, Vancouver and passed Terry Fox on the way. Hey, that's cool. We actually passed the Terry Fox caravan. That's awesome. That was, yeah, we knew what was going on at the time. That's cool. Spent the coldest day of my life in Winnipeg. The coldest <laughs> day of my life. Yeah. It's the coldest damn place on the planet Earth. It, it is. And uh, I think I've said this before. The good thing about it is there's no drug dealers on the corner. That's and right. Below. That's right. Okay. It's Portage okay. and Maine. And if, and if there are, they they are hardworking people. Okay? <laughs> and um, so so that's and and I have to say, the Canadian Rockies are better than American Rockies. Okay, you got it. <laughs> they're bigger. They're bigger. They're more majestic, and they're emptier <laughs> than the American Rockies. And then there's your book in which. First, you had to travel through the Rockies in order to then deal with the song contest or the song comparisons that you and your friend decided to illustrate as part of their lives. And I have to admire the importance that you give these songs in making you who you are, giving you the foundation of probably everything you believe in. I mean, it's it's impressive. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. I am in the middle of writing my book. Um, well, the band's been together 40 years, so it's going to take about 30 to write the book to give you an idea of how... <laughs> yeah. We want to give you a sense of, of years. Yeah. Kind of like our documentary. Why was it two hours and ten minutes long? Well, because we wanted to make it feel as long as it was. We couldn't make it 180 hours long, but we couldn't do it in two. So the book is, is coming. I just, it's sometime in 2018. Awesome. One thing I've always liked about Twisted Sister is that you guys put in your 10,000 hours in the bars. You know what I mean? You paid your dues. And you think about bands like, I don't want to shit talk anybody, but you think about bands like The Strokes, right? So people were saying, 1998, the band's going to be the next really great rock and roll band. And they just kind of flamed out. And I I, I feel like that happened because they didn't put in their 10,000 hours of of, of bar uh, dates, you know? Could be part of the reason. Easy come, easy go. What I, I tend to describe Twisted Sister as an iceberg. You know, when you see the show, you see a shiny tip above the surface. You don't see the the uh, gravitas beneath the surface. Yeah. And all those years in the bars, those 10,000 hours. And by the way, it's funny you should say it, because after reading Gladwell's book, I went back to do an analysis of how many hours we actually did play prior to or how many hours we dedicated to our life, uh, to the life of rock and roll prior to getting signed with our record deal. Right. And essentially, uh, 12 hours of every single day for those 10 years were dedicated in the waking hours of trying to be successful. Mm. But in terms of taking the hours of rehearsal and performance, I came up with um, about 9,800 hours worth of actual playing time. There you go. 
prior to our record deal. So um, that's why we knew we were good. I mean, you may not like the band because you don't like the way we look or whatever, but you can't deny the the uh, musicality we put our time in. Absolutely agree. Okay, man, you have got a list of uh, some great tunes here. So uh, we're going to start off with the Beatles and the entire side two of Abbey Road. I saw Paul McCartney two nights ago. Oh, you saw that? That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, he played the entire side two of Abbey Road. <laughs> oh, that's great. So as great as the Beatles are, and they are the beginning and the end of just about everything, and all the accolades they get, I would say that their parting shot to the world, the last statement they made um, with Abbey Road and side two, mm-hmm. um, what a way to end a career. What a way. If you think about it, their last song is, and in the end, the love you take is either than is, is greater than the love you make. Oh my, what a profound statement. Yeah. I mean, it is the most profound statement. It is the greatest statement. Mm-hmm. It's a statement that should be on tombstones. It is a religious statement. If you think about the purity of the goodness that religion is supposed to be about, mm-hmm. and not the guilt and the hellfire and all this stuff, but just about the the sanctity and purity of the human condition, they summed it up and it ended their last on the, the side two of their last record. I mean, what more do you need to say? I could have picked any one of a billion Beatles songs, so I want to hold your hand the first time I heard it to what it did to me, but I would say that Abbey Road is a final statement by a band that is the greatest band that was, that is the reason why all of us are doing what we're doing. Yeah. There is absolutely no way you can ever understate it or, or underhype it. Yeah. Without them, there ain't no us. No, it, Without them, there ain't no nothing. They are it. They're the Big Bang. Side two of Abbey Road is a testament to enormous, ridiculous, over-the-top artistry. Every now and again, drinks would find their way into the show, and uh, it would lead to some pretty funny exchanges. In episode 26, Kent Bailey and Brad Jemmett come in and uh, we talk about scratching and it gets a bit ridiculous. And okay. Brad will probably be nodding his head as he dips into his 30th beer of the evening. <laughs> okay, so again, clarification on Terminator X's job. What does he do? He's the DJ. I don't know how you can... He's a DJ. <laughs> what he does spins that the do? records. So what? Like, so I could do that. Could you? Well, I think so. <laughs> we could set this up. And I wanna, this could be a podcast in itself. I want to try. We're going to give you two, inter- so what two you, like, turntables how, 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 and a microphone, I believe. Wow. In the words of Beck. How hard is that? Well, we're going to find a out. Lot of ro- I'm going to get a lot of rocks thrown at me for this. You but seriously. So, so so you and I talked about this, right? So you spin, you do a little... Have and, you ever tried to scratch on a turntable? No. Have you ever tried to mix two songs on a turntable? No. Okay. I want to try though. I want. I want you. I to want to try. see if I can live, do. It. I want to I see if I can do a better live job. Live Facebook feed on this one for sure. <laughs> for sure. And after that, my neighbor Johnny Belton comes into the studio with some drinks and uh, tells me a story about his misspent youth. So, I wasn't even boating age. So how did you introduce him? Ed. 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 Come on. Ed. Ed. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Did you shake your hand? No. <laughs> Was he embarrassed? Probably. (laughs) I was. I'm sure you were. Anyhow. All right, let's get on with it. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay. And 
And speaking of drinking, I do quite a lot of that with my pal Ian O'Malley. This clip from episode 36 is from his house in Connecticut. And he tells a great story about one of the kings of substance abuse himself, Mr. Keith Richards. The, the, the song, my favorite Stone song, I've got, I've got a few of them. Uh, Moonlight Miles, probably one of them, but Slave is one of my all-time favorites off of Tattoo You. I just thought, I've just always thought Slave was a brilliant piece of music, and I think the, the saxophone in it is, um, I'm guessing it would be Bobby Kimball, I think, playing the sax, uh, is, is terrific. You know, oddly enough, Keith Richards just lives down the road from here. Um, he's probably a mile and a half away. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Really? He's, yeah, he's a stone's throw from me. He's very close by. A stone's throw. He's lived up here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very good. You're quick. Quicker than I am today, but I'm afraid I had a late night last night. Um, that's true. But he's lived up here for um, for quite some time, yeah. Keith, uh, you know, with with his wife, Patty, uh, yeah. a number of years that he, that, he is, uh, that he has lived up here. But yeah, Slave is... Um, I just think it's a brilliant piece of music, and I think it just it, it encompasses so many great things about the Stones. Um, you know, that this it, it's a slower song, but it's got a really cool kind of swing to it, even mm-hmm. though it's a very it's a slower beat. So to me, it's it's just an all around great Stone song. You know, with Jagger doing some singing, doing kind of his, almost his rapping that he would do. You know, yeah. you know where he speaks a lot of the words. Um, you know, Charlie Watts has never been known as, you know, Mr. Excitement behind the drums, <laughs> but he is a grand and he's 80 years old. Um, you know, Keith is a, he's a very interesting guy. I've met him on, on two or three occasions. Um, and one of the times that I met him was um, at the Hard Rock Cafe. We did this thing called Rocktober, oddly enough, here in this Rocktober that we're chatting. In New York City. Yeah, in New York City. Yeah. And what they did is our afternoon guy was this legendary DJ who's now uh, departed, this lovely guy named Scott Muni, mm-hmm. would do a broadcast from his afternoon show there for a week. And he always had uh, a lot of big time celebrity guests would come by, bands would play. I saw Van Halen play there when Sammy awesome. was in, you know, in this little tiny stage. I mean, it's like an eight foot tiny stage. They yeah. had, the place would be packed. And he would do this live broadcast. And it was a really cool thing. And he did it for a week. So Keith came by, and Scott Muni was famous for his uh, for being a very legendary DJ in New York. He was an older guy, and he was quite old then. Um, but for his voice, his voice kind of sounded like this. Yeah. And, of course, Keith's voice kind of <laughs> sounds like that. <laughs> Muni referred to uh, folks a lot, like Nick, and he called everybody Fats for some reason. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Fats... Keith Richards was coming by the show this week. You got to sit in on this one. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, Scott. Scott's on one side. Keith is um, in the middle, and I'm right to the right of Keith. And uh, the, the thing that I remember the most, you know, we always make the jokes about Keith and the amount that he's drank and drugged, and, you know, the only thing that's, that'll be left when the world comes to an end is the cockroaches of Keith Richards. That's right. But, you know, I, I saw that firsthand, and what happened was is a waitress comes up, and we were on, like, this little elevated stage. Yeah. She goes, you know, Mr. Richards, can I get you a drink? And Keith looks at her and he goes, yeah, darling, give me a scotch. And she goes, no problem, and, you know, coming right up. And she comes back a couple minutes later, and she's got a little, you know, little scotch glass. There's probably four ounces of scotch in it. And she, she sets it down in front of him, and he looks at her, and he looks at me, and he looks down in front of me, and there's an empty pint glass in front of me. Yeah. And um, so he takes the empty pint glass, and he hands it to her, and he goes, no, darling, give me a scotch. <laughs> so she, she gets the hint and off she goes and she comes back and she's got an absolutely full pint glass of scotch and okay. sets it down in front of him. And, and Keith wasn't talking anything stones at that point. He's got the side band that I'm sure you heard of called the expensive winos. Yeah, yeah. So I think they had a new record out at the time. This must've been sometime in the early nineties. 
so Scott starts off the interview. Hey, great to have you here, Keith. And you know, then Richards is you know, it sounds like somebody put glass in a blender with his voice. Yeah. And the thing that I remember the most about it is while Scott was asking him a question, Keith is taking a haul off of this pint of scotch. Right. And uh, I, I will just never forget it being absolutely mesmerized because as he's taking the drink, the the, the liquor keeps tilting and yeah. flowing and I could see his Adam's apple go up and this would be like you and I taking a swig of water when yeah. we're thirsty and he was only there for about it was a pretty quick visit uh, about 25 minutes or 20 minutes or so and by the time he left the, the entire he drank the glass he, he drank the glass dry Jeez. and it was just still the same old charming self you know I think we're if you or I drank it or anybody in the listening audience, we'd probably be hospitalized drinking yeah. a pint of scotch like that. But no, he did it and just, you know, shook hands. It was very pleasant with the crowd and, and, and off he went. Episode 82, Kelsey Maine and her guitar player, Annette Haas. Catch me as I misspeak about monkeys. Yeah, that, I, I grew up with, well, from Windsor, so a lot of Motown influence. My parents were really great and playing that music for me when I was little. So, um, and I still try to stay true to those roots and my influences in my music today. So, um, Good. but Aretha's, oh my gosh, she's, she was, she's probably my number one all time hero for, for I- idols yeah. in the music industry. Yeah. yeah. So, and she was, you know, pretty, pretty prominent in Detroit. So yeah, yeah. she's, uh, she's, Almost my home girl. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Almost. Well, we're, we're neighbors, right? Windsor and Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So. Th- this album, I think, like I said, I think it came out in, in '67 because "Respect" is also on this record. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, "Respect" and "Think" and uh, "Natural Woman," like those mm-hmm. are obviously some of my favorite songs as well. Yep. But I don't like to pick like the obvious songs. Good for you. I like to I like to expand people's I guess vocabulary, I guess. Good for you. Good. Um so I l- always like to just do something a little different and if yep. they don't know never loved a man then they need to. So That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm a deep cuts person too. It's funny that you say that because I you know, if I like I don't know, like a band like the Rolling Stones, say I'm not mm-hmm. a satisfaction guy. Yeah. I'm more of like a monkey guy, like the, the you know, track seven kind of thing. Right. You know? So, yeah. yeah. I'm making that one. I'm a monkey guy. Oh, I'm a, oh, yeah, I got, yeah, I just said I'm a monkey guy. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. I'm a monkey guy. We'll have to edit that out. <laughs> Wait, leave that in there. All right, we'll keep it up. This is a great clip. Susie Corey, friend of the show, has been in a number of times. Uh, this is from episode 98 where Susie and I have a conversation about Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton as a whole has always been someone who's very strong and very ballsy and knows who she is. Absolutely. And, you know, like you look at the song Nine to Five. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that movie when I was a kid in the theater. Really? Dabney Coleman, her, Lily Tomlin, and I saw it. Wow. Yeah. How about that? And what was your take on that? Well, it was, uh, it was really interesting. I have a funny story about that, actually. May I share it with you? Absolutely. Okay. So when I was a kid, I took things very literally, right? So, uh, you know, somebody said, well, Dolly Parton had like the biggest boobs like in the world, (laughs) right? And I actually thought, because I was so impressionable as a kid, I was like eight or nine then, that Dolly Parton was the human being on planet Earth, the female who had the largest breasts of any female (laughs) on planet Earth. And I actually thought that 
It's not the stupidest thing. Well, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was right. It's not that far off. I don't know. I took it to heart. That was what I was told, and I believed it. Well, this might be difficult to debate right now, but, you know, <laughs> we could discuss this afterwards and check, I guess. I don't know. The yeah, thing is, no. I, I've never really looked at Dolly Parton's boobs to see, like, how <laughs> big they are. You know what it is? I'll tell you something. And not that I'm an expert by any means, okay. but it's the fact that she has a really small waist. She's a tiny woman. I don't think she's very, you know, large. Okay. And so it accentuates the fact that uh, they're large. I so, see. Yeah. How did we get to this discussion again? Well, I, I <laughs> asked if I could share a personal story and right. it just kind of went from there. Well, listen, I'm going to Nashville. If you like, I can try and meet up with Dolly. Can you do that? Absolutely. You, well, let's see if we can verify that. <laughs> that <fact. laughs> right. You know, over the 99 episodes, KISS have found their way into a number of those. And uh, there's three clips here that you're about to hear. One of them is... Um, Mike Portnoy in episode 42 gets sidetracked and talks about Kiss when we're supposed to be talking about The Who. Uh, in episode 61, Chris Long and I have a bit of a debate about Peter Chris's solo album. And from episode 68, Bob Mayo tells a heartwarming story about how he made a friend over a Kiss record. You know, some of, some of my biggest heroes aren't drummers. You know, Frank Zappa yeah. and Roger Waters. Towns and, and Ace Frehley is, is on that list as well. Yeah. Wow. No, I, yeah, I was uh, I was absolutely obsessed with him. It must have been cool for you to meet him then eventually, right? Oh, amazing. I, I, uh, I got to play with him and Peter together. Um, I, I was the musical director at Eddie Trunk's 30th anniversary uh, show. That's awesome. And I was the one that put together all the, the, the band members and, you know, got every, all the special guests up there. And, wow. And, uh, I was able to, to play with Peter and Ace together. It was myself and Bumblefoot and Scott Ian and Frank Bellow from Anthrax and, uh, and Peter and Ace. And it was their first time not only playing together, but it was their first time like seeing each other in like 12 years or so. Or so. Oh, wow. so it was pretty surreal to be standing there. Me and Frankie Bellow was, were just standing there when, when, they, when uh, we were standing there talking to Peter yeah. when Ace walked in for the first time and, and you know, we got to watch them each other and hug each other for the first time in 11 or 12 years and oh, wow. get up there and play with them was, was one of the coolest experiences of my life that is so great yeah okay the uh, the next two so we, we were supposed to be talking about the who but man <laughs> <I know. laughs> we got a nice little kiss well, that, you know, that tends to happen on this show. We just kind of drift off when we, we touch on a mutually agreeable band like Kiss. You know, I, I think I've done 40 episodes of the podcast and Kiss pops up on like probably a quarter of them. And, they, you know, they're not on the original yeah. playlist. It's funny because, you know, Kiss is, is always that band that, that it's like a common touchstone that everybody can say, yeah, I was a Kiss fan too. How about, you know, this album or that? Did you have a... Oh, go ahead. Did you talk to JJ about Kiss at all? Oh, or God, JJ yeah. I know that... That's a crazy uh, story. I like. I was fascinated yeah. when he told me that story. He, you know, in the Wicked Lester days, he went and played in that loft on what was it, like Fifty Third yeah. Street or whatever. And he, you know, conceivably could have been Ace Frehley, right? Yeah. I mean, not Ace Frehley, yeah. but like yeah. he, he could have been Kiss's lead guitar player. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that, and you know. But that's a whole other story. That's that's for JJ to tell. 
Oh, totally. Yeah, but he well, he talked about it on his first podcast. But he, he's a, such a humble guy, right? He he just kind of glossed over it. But yeah, JJ's definitely uh, due for a book. He's full. He's one of the most storytelling people I've ever met. I mean, he's just filled with stories. So he's definitely due for a book. What else you got? We got the Peter Chris album. <laughs> okay, so before you go on, this the, the Peter Chris album, and I don't mind saying this for the world to hear, is bland and dull, and I think it has a very so what quality about it. I said, are we still live? <laughs> it's a terrible. It's, it's just a terrible, uninspired record. I, I, you can't listen to that thing start to finish. You, you know, is, is this off the record? or Are we still on? We're still on. And to that, Brent Jensen, yeah. I would like to say that the unfair maligning for the last 40 years of yeah. the Peter Chris album, yeah. it hurts my heart. I'm sorry to hear that. Peter Chris's record <laughs> is, as, as Paul Stanley's is universally praised for being the most Kiss-like, right. the Peter Chris record is universally panned. And I really think that that's unfair because for any even even for a stupid kiss fan like i was when i was 15 Mm -hmm. you know i always knew that peter chris was that guy he was the one thing that was not like the other uh i never thought that peter chris was uh some hardcore rock guy Mm -hmm. uh i just always had the impression that he was more came from more of a an r&b sort of background mm-hmm. and i think his record for me anyway his record was one of those that was not the surprise because it delivered w- completely what i expected right. it was not kiss like i didn't expect it to be kiss like his was the one solo record where they released two singles yeah. uh, but they were the wrong singles and if the promo department at Casablanca had been promoting records instead of snorting cocaine ad nauseum back then, right. you know, these records probably would have sold off all five million units and they probably would have all had successful uh, top 40 hit single. I think that whole record was a bad choice. <laughs> I really do. I, you know, I've, I'm fascinated by this stuff. Why was this your entry point into Kiss? What is it, an age thing? Was there a specific reason for it? Well, I'm in junior high. I'm I'm 14. I think it was 1976 or yeah. 77. And I don't have a ton of friends in school. And one kid that uh, befriended me was a huge Kiss fan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, me not really knowing how to make friends, how to have a friend, I lied and i told them i was a huge kiss fan too and i knew what they looked like uh, but i didn't know what they sounded like mm-hmm. and i i did not own any records at all my sister had a bunch of records that but i never listened to them i had no connection with any of them so he took a different bus home from school than i did but he lived just a few blocks away from a mall where the the local record store was the, the cool record store it was called music machine okay and he, we talked about Kiss, and I just I lied my way through my part of the conversation. <laughs> but I was just happy to be having a conversation with somebody. And he said, hey, why don't you take, take my bus home with me, and we can listen to records. Wow, I'm getting invited over to this kid's house. He's, he wants to listen to music. That's awesome. So I did that. And he said, great. So why don't you tomorrow, why don't you bring the Kiss album, the new Kiss album, to school? Because I told him I had it. 
you know, back in the, earlier in the conversation. He said, why don't you bring that over? I don't have it yet, so I can listen to it. And I said to myself, uh-oh, I'm busted. I don't have the album. What I did was I took the bus to his bus stop, walked over to the mall, bought the album, and then walked back up to his house. Wow. I took the shrink wrap off and stashed it somewhere <laughs> and knocked on his door and said, here, I got the album. I brought it over. Here you go. Let's listen to it. It's really great. Lying through my teeth. <laughs> and we sat down and listened to it, and he, he didn't know, but it was the first time both of us were hearing the album. So it was just, I guess you could say, long story short, it was me in a desperate attempt to make a friend. Going all the way back to episode nine, Rachel Sumner talks about the UK female singer-songwriters that taught her how to feel. I was thinking back to that generation above mine and what there was in terms of female artists. And it's almost embarrassing. When I was looking back and researching women of that kind of Joni Mitchell era in the UK, Mm -hmm. there was not a lot of depth to it. It's got to be said, not a lot of um, true emotion, a lot of fluff and nonsense and female artists being packaged by looks and, and, and kind of trivial stuff. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's not very eloquent, but, but we didn't have a Joni Mitchell really. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be others. Some of your listeners are saying, Oh, for God's sake, we did. It was (laughs) X. But for me, I couldn't come up with anybody that I felt really had the depth and Mm. the eloquence and the musicality of Mitchell Mm -hmm. in the UK in the same period. But then you come forward a generation to my generation, and I think we had a number of of women emerging in the kind of, you know, 80s, early 90s um, that really taught us how to feel. Mm -hmm. And what I've done with my list for you today is looked at the ones that really influenced me around that time, my kind of what I call my formative years, but then also come a little bit further and quite up to date really in terms of now the kind of female, British female lyricist songwriters that, you know, my daughter's generation are listening to and how how it's, I think it's changing in terms of how it's teaching them how to feel. Episode 94 singer-songwriter Audra Santa ain't sorry. What do we need to do to connect more to each other, Mm -hmm. to heal things that have been broken? What do I need to do to connect more to parts of myself that feel broken? Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, with spirituality, in whatever way you understand that, how do we then connect to that higher force that's bigger than us? and which I call God, but how do I connect in a more meaningful way? Mm. And for a while, I compartmentalized myself so much, and I used to think I could only choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. And my first video, Cruel, is very much about that. You'll see dark, and you'll see light. You'll almost see these two personas. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that the real me is actually found in not being afraid of any of it. And I'm not sorry. (laughs) You're a very intriguing individual, Audra Santa. Episode 75, Teresa Cirillo comes into the studio and I wander up a little bit about Pitbull. The Raw Nuts? Pitbull. I'm a huge Pitbull fan. Are you really? I do. I, I like you so much up until this very <laughs> point. Did I mention I have about 10 songs from Pitbull that I wanted to discuss? Uh, <laughs> so I was going to say, why don't you just come back and do the show again? But now if you, if you bring a Pitbull song in, I just can't have you back. <laughs>
All right, this clip is from episode 57. This is friend of the show, Sean Bodewin from Seattle, and he tells a hilarious story about hosting a radio show and Queensryche, kinda. I had a, a radio show in college, uh-huh. and it was from 1 to 3 in the morning. This yeah. is in Ohio. So the only people listening are like people up on meth and people who work in gas state, 24 hour gas stations. They're like it was, it was a weird crowd. It, yeah. You know, they would call, call in and request stuff sometimes. And uh, earlier one day before my show, a friend of I, mine and I had kind of gone into this basement below the music room that you weren't supposed to be in. And there were all these piano parts you know, like the, the interiors of pianos with the, the strings still attached and the springs and everything, but without yeah. a piano, just kind of leaning against the wall. Yeah. And so we went in there and just started hitting them with hammers. And it made this amazing cacophony that almost sounded like it was some intentional avant-garde piece of music. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, I used to carry around a little mini disc recorder thing, you know, like from Mission Impossible, yeah. with like real old ones with a tiny little cassette in it. Yeah. It's, so I recorded us playing it, and then that night on my radio show, someone requested uh, Queensryche Live. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you remember Queensryche. But yeah, totally I do. And yeah. they're from they're from Seattle too, right? Just outside. Yeah, exactly. Although I didn't, you know, back then I was totally unaware. So I, I said, you know, okay, now we're going to do this special live recording of Queensryche, <laughs> and then played that thing of us hitting the pianos. And uh, I really, I think I got a death threat. Oh, really? <laughs> People called in. They were really, really mad. It, well, you know, I was 18 or 19 or whatever I was, so I wasn't very smart. But <laughs> the, the guys staying up late who were ready to hear Queensryche when they needed it, yeah. you know, at 3 in the morning on their shift when they were, you know, <laughs> eating Twinkies and <laughs> need to burn off some energy, were not pleased, <laughs> to say the least. That's so great. Yeah. Learned a valuable lesson. Uh. <laughs> Never screw with people's metal on the late shift. (laughs) Episode 95, my buddy from Brighton Rock, Greg Fraser, tries to break the rules by slipping in an extra song to his playlist. That scammer. Okay, so you're cheating here a little bit, Fraser. You're breaking the rules. You're sneaking a song in at the end. Me? Yes, Who, me? yes, you. <laughs> I'm not counting right. You wanted how many ones? You just want to forgot. So you, so you said special mention. <laughs> <laughs> Seven songs plus special mention of ACDC's <laughs> Rock and Roll Damnation. <laughs> oh, come on! How can you not have ACDC in here somewhere? <laughs> Ah, you can't blame me, man. Come on. No, I do not blame you, and you're definitely welcome to do that stuff. I I could talk to you about music all day, my friend. And likewise, man, that's what it's all about. Going back to episode 17, and Crownland's guitar player, Kev Como, brings uh, his guitar with him into the studio, and it's the first and only time in the history of No Sleep Till Sudbury where the intro music is different. He plays uh, a slide guitar piece for the intro, and he plays Rush's Xanadu for the outro.
this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And folks, I'm very excited today because we have got live in studio Kevin Como, guitarist hey. for the Hey Kev, guitarist <laughs> for the uh, hot new heavy blues band in Toronto called Crownlands, a band I love. Their EP uh, called Mantra uh, came out last year, and uh, these guys have been just like ripping up Toronto. They uh, something like that. Yeah. Working very hard. <laughs> working hard. But you guys just won the uh, the Hits FM uh, Rock Search. Yeah, 2017. yeah. Uh, 97.7 out in St. Catharines. Yeah. They they crowned us their winners this year. Just super, super humbling. Like, we uh, we didn't quite believe it when it happened. We had, uh, like, I had my mom, my dad, and my girlfriend there with me. And, like, nice. we were all kind of huddled around in this corner, right? You know, everyone's just, uh, like, almost praying, right? And yeah. all of a sudden, one, and just everyone started jumping up and down. And, uh, yeah, it didn't really seem real until we got on stage and, you know, gave everyone a hug and shook everyone's hand. And it's still, like, it's not quite real, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, our friends are texting us, like, oh, we heard you on the radio. And it's like, <laughs> what? And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been amazing so far. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Very, very, very well done. Good job, man. Thanks. You know, I'm going to tell you something, Kev. You are wise beyond your years, my uh, friend. Oh, uh, thanks, man. Thanks. Definitely. I, I was very impressed. I, I learned a lot today. And oh, I me love too, that. man. Yeah. yeah, you did a great job. So th- thank, thank you very much for coming out. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to have you. Cool. So can you do me one favor? Absolutely. Can you can you play us out? Give me a little bit of rush. Can oh, jeez. What, what rush do I... Uh, here, we'll, we'll, we'll go through uh, some, some of Xanadu. There you go. Perfect. As I said at the top of the show, I've been really fortunate to have had some great musical guests on the show. One of those was Barney Bentall. Drives a pickup for a corner store Four bucks an hour and he's hoping for He's 28 years old and he still lives at home Bobby's got ideas but he ain't alone There's a million and Bobby's across this land Everybody's got a real big plan Talks in mean street Makes more in an hour Than Bobby in a week He 
tells the boy he don't waste your time Be useless like your father and nickel and dime There's a million million bobbies across this land Everybody's got a real big plan He's got something to live for Something so real Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was incredible, Barney. I'm a huge fan of that song. That was a massive highlight yeah. for me. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you sincerely. I really appreciate that. Wow. Sweet. Wow. Okay, Barney Bentall. This has been Brent Jensen and No Sleep Till Subway with my special guest, Barney Bentall. He'll be playing Hughes Room tonight, January 10 through January 13. Get his new record, The Drifter and The Preacher, out now. Thanks, Brent. Thank you. Wonderful to talk to you. Next up in Musical Guests, episode 80, Christina Martin, playing Lungs Are Burning. So we're going to do things a little bit differently today. Typically what we do is we have a little chat and then we get into your tunes, which I have here. But you guys have volunteered to play uh, an awesome song from the new record, Impossible to Hold, and it's called Lungs Are Burning. Yeah. All right, so take it away. I love this tune. We'll talk about it after you're done. Give me a 
clip from episode 87 and this is Orlando meteorologist Amy Sweezy. She talks about a song that makes her skin vibrate and as the story unfolded I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Check it out. So last on your list Amy you've got a song called Majesty and it's by Ron Kennelly I believe his name is. Yeah, so this is kind of an odd choice, I realize. This is kind of like a hymn that's sung at churches. Mm-hmm. And um, so the story behind this song is that I had a friend in college who was a son of a minister. Mm-hmm. And his dad was a pastor out in Colorado. I was in school in Chicago, so I met my friend Paul in Chicago. And his dad, he, he was originally from Colorado. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Paul was the life of the party, super fun, hilarious comedian, made everybody laugh. Um, we had a whole group of friends and whenever Paul was around, you know, everybody was always laughing. And one of the things he would do is sort of mimic this song and he would stand in the middle of a whole party of people or a whole crowd of people and just belt this song out at the top of his lungs. (laughs) Um, you know, this whole big, like majestic song, like you're standing in this big old church with stained glass windows, you know? And so that song was always kind of, you know, related to him. It was kind of a funny thing. We would hear the song like the big pipe organ that would play. (laughs) And it just all brings up those sort of church thoughts in your brain. And um, Paul was a really special friend. And in college, um, sadly, he ended up committing suicide. Mm. 
And when it happened, obviously we were all very shocked and very hurt and very troubled. Mm -hmm. And we all, a whole group of us drove from Chicago out to Colorado for the funeral. Mm -hmm. And when we got there, um, they, the, 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 the church was packed out. There wasn't a seat available. Mm -hmm. So they took the whole group of the college students and they put us up in like where the choir would sit in the very front of the church. So we're sitting in the front of the church facing all of the people and all of the people at this funeral are looking back at us Mm -hmm. during this funeral. Mm -hmm. So it was this whole weird, awkward, like, oh my gosh, people are looking at me. Oh my gosh, my friend just died. And you're going through all this emotion and all of this, you know, just, just so much emotion. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the funeral, they started playing this song because his parents chose this majesty song to play. And all of us like all look at each other and we were like, we didn't know what to do. Do we laugh? Do we cry? Mm -hmm. And we kind of started giggling like, oh my gosh, because we could see Paul who was just this hilarious, wonderful, huge person Mm -hmm. singing this song at the top of his lungs. And now they're singing it in this church at his funeral. And we're all like laughing and everyone's looking at us going, why are these kids laughing when they're at a funeral? Mm. And it just, every time I hear that song, it brings back this sort of weird mix of happy, sad, um, tragic, funny friendship. Um, you know, just every emotion that you can think of, it brings me back to that, um, to that moment sitting in that church and hearing that song with that big like pipe organ song uh sound mm-hmm. and it's just this big sort of choir sounding song and if you never heard it you can youtube it and find a bunch of different versions of it but um yeah so it's kind of a that's kind of a strange story to share i know um but it just it was such a a huge part of my life and my college experience yeah and you know to this day a lot of us who were friends then are still friends and we get together and remember Paul and remember that song. And if we hear that song, it still kind of puts a smile on all of our faces, just remembering the good times and the, and the fun side of all of that story. All right. One last clip. This is from episode number 91. And this is uh, former sting guitarist, Jeffrey Lee Campbell. He did a fantastic job on the show. And this clip is just a little anecdote that he mentioned on the show that has stuck with me ever since. And I wanted to finish with it because I think it's very prescient. Jeff Campbell. The emotional thing, I I remember reading a story one time, uh, old soul singer Sam Cooke, he and Bobby Womack, another soul, a younger soul singer at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, were listening to music and Sam Cooke played some Bob Dylan for Bobby Womack. And he said, Bobby Womack shaking his head saying, man, that guy can't sing at all. (laughs) And Sam Cooke said to him, he said, we're not listening for singing, we're listening for truth. That's it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this look back at the first 100 episodes of No Sleep Till Sudbury. And once again, sincere thanks to you, the loyal listeners in Canada, in the U.S., and also in the U.K., listeners in Australia, Spain, Germany, Sweden, India, Japan, and in South America. I know you're listening, and I want you to know that I appreciate it sincerely. Here's to the next 100. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>